It is Monday, September 21st. Happy fall. Happy fall. It's fall tomorrow. Boy, did I not think fall was going to be like this. Oh, I thought you were going to say I didn't think we'd make it to fall this year. I guess one or the other. Either we wouldn't make it to fall or it, or it would be much better than it is. But not just the same thing. I did not think, you know, we we hit the six month mark. We talked about it. Yeah. But like, I mean, think of the th- all the things that are going to start happening now. It's the holidays. You're going to have pandemic holidays season, pumpkin spice pandemic mm-hmm. holiday season and all the things like Halloween. We talked about being canceled and mm-hmm. um, Christmas will probably be canceled, too, I guess. We're scottless today. Scott free. We have no Scott. He is feeling a little sick, and so he's taking a break. It's just Hayes Davenport and Alyssa Walker today. Alyssa, where were you for the you? I mean, you coined something. <laughs> I'll let you say it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it should be said out loud. <laughs> it's a, it's a we have the Shamrock Shake, which was the the. the um, St. Patrick's Day earthquake from 2013, 2014. Uh, and Alyssa coined this week's earthquake as the Rasha Sheka. <laughs> well, because we also had the 4th of July. That's right. We had we the 4th quake holidays, and the 5th so quake. That's right. They, we've they, had a lot of yeah, holiday quakes. We have. Where were you? Set the scene. I had just fallen asleep. I was up a little bit later than normal doing some work. Had just fallen asleep. Um, and I thought this was it. That was I thought this long this and one. intense. Yeah. Um uh, two pieces of art fell off our wall and smashed mm-hmm. glass all over our living room. I so saw the pictures. first thing I heard, yeah, the first thing I heard was actually breaking glass. Mm. And so that to me was like it had to be really bad. Worse than it was just it's not that they were taken off the wall. It's that we're irresponsible people who had propped them up on a table instead of, you know. I was going to say, none of my stuff <laughs> fell off, but yours was just leaning against the wall. We were going to hang it. Yeah. We were going to hang it. But what was, that was a little scary. It felt very strong and very, I don't know, uh, active. It just yeah. felt like it was it was coming. It wasn't like this. Usually you feel like a jolt and then kind of like you kind of swing around for a minute. But this was... Very uh, shaky. And then my Quake alert went off. That's really exciting, exciting. Alyssa. Congratulations. (laughs) Not the cities. Not the cities. Oh, never mind. But even just getting an alert at all. And so you got it during the Quake or right after? Yeah. The shaking had started. um, It was probably just finishing up when it. uh, Yeah. The the, the hardest shaking was finishing up when it went off. Yeah. and we had reports from all over. Well, what about you? What's your story? I just ran into the other room. I'm just kind of with my arms out, like ready for, I don't know what. <laughs> to stop it. Yeah. To like. <laughs> just in sort of ready position. <laughs> and just saying like, it's okay. It's okay. My wife and I were both awake. Uh, Standing by windows and doors. 
stay away from take, them. You didn't take cover. Well, after after every earthquake, I relook up what I'm supposed to be doing. There's one uh, we have like a dining room table that I don't trust. Mm, I think it mm-hmm. would collapse and smush me if anything right. fell on it. So you're supposed to get in a corner, I guess, that's not near any windows. Right, right. right. Uh, I didn't do that. Uh, didn't get an alert of any kind on my Shake Alert app. Uh, and I think it is time to delete. <laughs> a lot of people did feel that way. We had some reports of, well, also I should note the, there's so many shakes when we go through these shakes. Uh, you know, we've got the my shake. Yeah. <laughs> we've got LA sh- or shake alert LA and quake alert are the three that I have on my phone. So the my shake one, which is like a, a state one too, it was developed by uh, Northern California um, seismology team. Um, they ha- don't have the same uh, setting where you can turn on critical alerts. So your do not disturb will not get over road if you uh, are, it happens after you've turned off your phone for the night. So that I actually might have gotten an alert from them if it, if it had been before my phone went on do not disturb. Okay. Um, Because it did show up as a notification the next morning. I'm not, I don't know, but some people did get that alert. Some people did get the shake alert. Yes. Primarily on the white side, the west side, farther away from. (laughs) The white side. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yes. And and then some people also did get the shake alert LA alert um, if they were further away. So this was, you know, close enough to be very quite difficult to predict, actually to forecast and get out an alert pretty fast. Mm -hmm. It was right on the, you know, it was 4.5, 4.6, which is right on the um, brink of like what you would, you know, send out an alert for. So the um, shake alert system had to make a really quick decision about 4.5 and send it to people who are like, you know, 10 miles away, you know, in downtown LA. So it does look like it worked. And some people did get the city's one. Um, There were still some issues like it never showed up on the map on the city's one. Um, People said they got like multiple alerts. um, And it was a sound like a klaxon uh-huh. sound um so we do know that it does make noise <laughs> um but i also heard that people i heard from someone who got it in santa barbara when you're not supposed to get the alerts when you leave no. la county um so it didn't geolocate them exactly where they were supposed to be um and then also some some just people who were getting it not not where they were it's similar things like that. Like it, it had picked their last location or something and mm-hmm. hadn't updated. And people wondered if like the app needed to be, you know, they needed to refresh the app themselves or something like that. Um, but it did, it did work a little bit for some people. It didn't give a lot of notice because we were too close to it. I mean, it wasn't going to be like a, a lot of notice anyway. So you shouldn't get too mad about that, but it was a, it was a scary one. So the epicenter was at the link in like the, St. Gabriel's and like the Montebello, El Monte area. El Monte, yeah. Uh, it was a 4.6 at the end of the day. Apparently, according to Dr. Lucy Jones, friend of the podcast, in the same location as the 87 Whittier Narrows quake, but that one was significantly more intense. That was a 5.7, I think. And a bunch of people died in that one. Uh, so freaky it just like gave you just a taste of how bad it could be 
you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I was mentally preparing for at least a minute that this was it and trying to plot out how I would get to my kids and how much broken glass I was yeah. going to have to walk through. The, and if the rock the could be like that long and intense for a 4.6, you could just feel like if this is the beginning of a bigger one, that, I mean, that's it. Yeah. It's and this was over. on the thrust. I mean, this is on the fault that is uh, of great concern. It's on the Puente Hills fault thrust. Probably our most dangerous um, fault. Although thrust, Ron Lynn wait, at the LA Times every two weeks has a new article that's like, this yeah. is actually the most dangerous fault. And it runs <laughs> under your bed. There's like five of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I said it wrong before, but uh, this is the Puente Hills uh, thrust fault system, which goes from out where the epicenter was through downtown L.A. And that's like one of the bigger quakes that they're really worried about because they really don't know how it would affect the buildings, mm -hmm. some of which are still mm -hmm. unsafe in downtown. So just look forward to that. We I think we're out of the woods as far as an aftershock, though. Yeah, yeah Dr. Jones said uh, by the next evening, you're pretty much down to like yeah. a 1% chance or something. Although yeah. the Ridgecrest one did have a bigger one right after But that, that was the next day. <laughs> that was the next evening, right? It was 34 hours. 34 So, hours. yeah. You just have to think about how rare that, you know, <laughs> not rare, but, you know, statistically uh, unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> this happened last week after we recorded, but uh, I I recorded a little opener to the show mentioning it, but we should get into it in more detail because a lot more stuff happened related to this story. KBCCLAS reporter Josie Huang was, I, everyone has seen the, the video now, uh, thrown to the ground and arrested by LA Sheriff's Department deputies after uh, covering the, the shooting of two deputies that happened on uh, Saturday night last week. Uh, the, the deputies have been taken to a hospital. There were some uh, five or so protesters outside the hospital. Uh, Josie Wong was covering them. One of them got arrested. And as the deputies were arresting that person, uh, Josie was videotaping it on her phone. And they decided she got too close. You can see a lot of stuff in the video. Uh, they told her to back up, gave her no time whatsoever to do that. By the time she started to back up two seconds later, they were already on her and like throwing her first into a car and then onto the ground. Uh, she is yelling the entire, as everyone knew, by the way, she's yelling the entire time that she's a reporter. She's yelling the name of her outlet. The deputies are acknowledging that she's saying she's a reporter. She's wearing a lanyard around her neck that says she's a reporter. And yet the first thing that came out of the sheriff's department in reaction to this arrest was that she didn't identify herself as a reporter, which she could not have done it more comprehensively. There's no way she could have uh, like gotten that point across better than she did. So the first thing they did was lie, and then they continued to lie about it from the public information office to the sheriff himself for the rest of the week, right? Uh, they lied about many more things, too, yes. this week. It was a, it was a, a lies upon lies. And, and, and really, I mean, it was very hard to watch and hear her yelling for help from yeah. the other newscasters who were around the corner. I mean, that's who she said later that she was trying to get the attention of. There were people who were, um, and 
who were, you know, she knew were, were there and they were packing up for the night. Um, and imagine being, yeah, you know, in custody, being taken into custody and yelling for help um, from people who are not the people who are supposed to be protecting you. Um, right. And her phone somehow, I don't know how this happened because you see this part where they're trying to destroy her phone um, somehow kept recording for yeah. the entire process. So we have this very like wrenching um, abuse of her um, in addition to all the corroborating evidence that you would need um, to prove that she was doing what she was supposed to be doing. And they continue to lie both on their Twitter feed um, in statements made to the press that other outlets repeated and got out there. Um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of foreboding for setting the tone for the rest of the rest of the week. And she had bruises on her, you know, she took a lot of pictures. I just, I commend her for being so, um, you know, she gets out of, she leaves jail in the morning and, uh, you know, rests up and then she started just posting everything and really being, um, you know, just very eloquent and, and very kind of meticulously going through every single thing that happened. Um, and it it was bad. And there were some people who came out right away. Um, we had um, Mark Riley Thomas, I think, was the first elected official to say something. It was him or or, or Sheila Kuehl. Oh, or, or, or about Josie or about the sheriff? About Josie. Okay, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure who was first Yeah, that, that day. I mean, we started to see that kind of like leading up to that part, too. We started to see some people come forward and say... Um, you know, make statements about that they thought, you know, what was done was wrong and asking for an investigation. That happened as well. That when you know, move forward. Um, but then the lies continued as yeah. we get went into the week. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not like, there's so many things that are scary and upsetting about this, but it's all part of like a larger theme, which is, the sheriff's department using everything as like a kind of publicity campaign to uh, to maintain their current funding levels, to turn things into more of like a political debate, sometimes to take things into like the, the national culture war. The thing that really stood out to me, and this wasn't a lie really, but just like how they handled this one situation. So the some protesters uh, were outside the hospital that the deputies who had been shot were brought to. From the video I saw, there were five. Yeah, it was like five or six. Yeah. yeah. And they're yelling at the deputies that are there guarding the hospital. And one of them, I think on the video, and maybe they all, maybe they all did at some point. But uh, one of them yells like, we hope they die or something. And the sheriff's department, the official sheriff's department Twitter account posted to the protesters that are blocking the entrance to the emergency room uh, outside the hospital yelling we hope they die to the deputies that have just been shot you need to move you're not allowed to block that entrance as if they were tweeting sending out a public tweet just to address these five protesters telling them to move to the side instead of what they were actually doing which is trying to ignite right-wing social media to uh to turn this into a bigger story about antagonism toward uh towards law enforcement which is what happened like that blew up 
and you had Catherine Barger, the supervisor, and like all, all like elected officials all over the country talking about this very small handful of people. And this what this story was blown up by the sheriff's department. Like they did it. They're political actors. We talk about it now, obviously, with the Supreme Court. But like all of these figures in our lives that are supposed to be non-political or supposed to be unbiased. It's political from top to bottom. Like there is, there's just no escaping it. Like these people with guns are political actors. Uh, and they, I mean, that culture is set by Sheriff Villanueva who in every press conference, as always, he made very clear the, the whatever investigation or whatever was a foregone conclusion uh everything that his deputies did was fine that that josie was somehow wrong and went crossed the line from being a journalist to an activist he said right. over he said that and over several again. times yeah. right which also she was standing on the sidewalk you're allowed even if she had become an activist or whatever that's even supposed if she to mean, were an activist even if she were an activist yeah you are allowed to stand on the sidewalk you're allowed to film people being arrested you're allowed to do all the things that she was doing and she wasn't even that close which was completely corroborated by all of the videos and other videos from people who i think another news crew or something was across the street you could very clearly see how far away she was um it just had no it had no bearing in fact it was just so and, and then to also see like the culture that you were talking about being created, um, there was a, a public information officer who her own personal Twitter account um, it became very clear who was right, perhaps writing the tweets that night right. because she was quote tweeting them um, with her own um, inflammatory uh, and uh untruthful and blatantly racist and showing just complete disdain for the community that she is supposed to be caring for. And somehow people are still asking this person for comment on the investigation. That's like, her job. She's on. the person I mean, that yeah. you're supposed to ask. Yeah. So she is the one who's quoted like the next day when somebody asks a question about what happened. And then you go look at her own Twitter feed. She deleted a bunch of tweets. And but she said to some reporter, like, well, those, are just, those are just opinions. Yeah. Just, she said that opinions. what she had said <laughs> was an opinion. They're just opinions. They're different than, you know, what yeah. she was sharing <laughs> which on the official sheriff's department view, which were also technically just opinions since they were not. I mean, people from all over the country, this was national news. Mm -hmm. I mean, this blew up in the morning um, and it, people were like, oh, you know, sheriff's department is, is so, uh, this is so dangerous. And we're like, yeah, we know. Like, oh, thanks for finally seeing what we've been telling you about. And people were like, <laughs> did you know there's gangs? Yeah, <laughs> in the sheriff's department. Have you ever? Do you heard know anything? about this? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Welcome, <laughs> welcome <laughs> to, to the our media capital of, of the country. Yeah. Like, but a lot of that is because of, and I guess we can talk about this part too. Is just how, even later in the week, when we had a press conference, he did take uh, Villanueva did take questions from just an AP reporter. The the quote that we were talking about before, yeah. how. Um, asking questions about who was asking questions about, um, you know, pointing out the the errors in what they had put out. Um, LAist and KPCC did like an exhaustive 
um, reporting of all the things that he lied about and that the sheriff's department put out that was false and, you know, just built this very clean case for what, you know, actually happened. And then he answered some questions from an AP uh, reporter um, and again, just kind of got to say whatever he wanted and people still reported it that way. And then we had a press conference later in the week to have an update on Dijon Kazee and what was happening with that investigation. And again, lies were told, evidence was shown that went against what, you know, they said, what they claimed. Mm-hmm. And people just still reported it as if it was fact. Yeah, and it took... Other journalists after the Dijon Kazee press conference where they said that we've talked about this case before, but uh, they said that uh, Dijon Kazee had been holding a gun in a, a bundle of clothes, had dropped the clothes and then picked up the gun. And they they, and they said that again. And the, sometimes at one point they said he just bent over. To pick up they the said gun. A, yeah, they said they a million said different, two different things. things. But yes. in this final press conference, they said that he picked up the gun and that the deputies were like staring down the the barrel of it uh, when they decided to fire. But Sarah Sliman at Streets Blog posted, and uh, our co-host Scott contributed to this effort as well with a number of gifts that kind of show what happened. Uh, you can see the gun kind of sliding away from the from the scene. And clearly, very clearly, yes. like it doesn't even it doesn't even take it, it was something that they they themselves showed and talked in front of this video. Yeah, exactly. And Kazi is trying to run away uh, when they shoot him 19 times, as it uh, as it turns out, and kind of two separate bursts. So all of this, I mean, this is what's really amazing for a law enforcement uh, the top cop who is obsessed with publicity, Alex Villanueva managed to turn the attempted murder of two deputies into one of his worst PR weeks so far. I mean, this could have been just like a tie turning where people out of deference to the sheriff's department. That's the instinct of all these elected officials to say like these, yeah, out of respect to these deputies. Right. You had, yeah. You have statements from everybody being like, we, you know, we're mourning the, the, you know, we're, we're, you had statements from all, every elected official basically saying, you know, we're thinking of the families, we're supporting the sheriff. And then many of them within 12 hours had to also post <laughs> something else. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and later we're calling for his resignation. Absolutely, later in the week. and it would. It also so even if the deputies arrest Josie Huang, if that plays out exactly as it was, if Villanueva says that was wrong, obviously the uh, Jackie Lacey shouldn't press charges. We are sorry about that. That was a mistake, which they said to a Fox reporter later that week. For a deputy just shining a flashlight into their yeah, TV public camera. apology, yeah, of course, a public tweet from the from uh, Ben Nueva. Yes. Yeah, happens to be the network that Bill Malugan works for that they apologize to. What a coincidence! But they instead lie, politicized it, lied so many times. Uh, he, the sheriff said that KPCC. First of all, he said over and over that KPCC is just like not a good. No one knows what it is, and like it's not a good uh, network, and like disparage oh, yeah. this outlet as if that means anything. That that uh, 
was it Libby Denkman said that he calls in regularly to be on Air Talk with, with Larry Mantle, not even as a scheduled guest, but he clearly thinks this publication and this uh, station are so not a big deal that he calls in to be of on the show. <laughs> but he also said that that was the outlet that reported the Sassafras Saloon uh, story and said that there were sheriff's deputies there, which it was not. It was KCRW and CNN and a, a few other outlets. He also said that the person in the original video at the Sassafras Saloon was a reporter trying to trap deputies. Also not correct. So, so many lies, so many false statements that it finally led to, and finally being the operative word here. I don't know. I mean, like, why this instead of a million other things? Yeah, it took a few months longer than we thought. It finally led to two county supervisors calling for his resignation following an even more surprising event where I saw people live tweeting this, and it was really funny to see. (laughs) Uh, The sheriff's department has a citizen's oversight commission. And the people on it have varying degrees of allegiance to law enforcement. And one of the people on it is a guy named Robert Bonner, uh, who's a a former U.S. attorney. And he's considered the most conservative person on this commission, basically. Uh, And people live tweeting were like, great, I can't wait to see what Bonner says. Just like like suck up to the the sheriff's department like yet again. (laughs) And then people are like, Bonner just said that Villanueva should resign. Yeah, <laughs> and after that, I think the supervisors were like, "Okay, well, like the da- we can't be on the sidelines now. Like we like we got to do something." Um, and so Sheila Kuehl and Mark Ridley Thomas both called for his resignation. Doesn't mean anything. He won't do it, as he yeah, said. And and who can take him out? No one. I mean, nobody. We don't. <laughs> We don't have the ability to do that. No, there. I mean, um, there's the recall, but like at this point, I think everyone is just kind of waiting for uh, 2022. <laughs> it's gonna be a long, long time. Yeah, there's a lot he could. A lot of uh, a lot, a lot of damage that can be done. So I guess like the question, just to wrap this up and going into this next week, another thing that we did see is you know usually you don't have city people commenting on what's going on with the sheriff's department because it was, um, you know, it's county and it's not. But you did have a lot of um, council members speaking out about Josie and, you know, calling for um, that somehow they wouldn't comment on, you know, people being murdered by the sheriff's department. But if somebody, a reporter gets put in jail, then they'll speak out. And we did have also the mayor, um, talk about this because uh, the the shooting of the deputies happened at a metro station. So we have this kind of interesting overlap now yeah. where jurisdictional all of a a, tweeting. Yeah. Suddenly he can make a comment about something because it happened at a metro. It was just so we we we're, we're going to in this very weird period now where anything that happens at the sheriff's department do um, they're going to be there's going to be so much national attention on them now. Finally, people are starting to notice, but you wonder how many people, more people are going to be speaking up about what's happening and, and yeah. making it seem like it really does affect them. We, I mean, in terms of what the city could be talking about, like they, 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 there's no, even with the county supervisors, there's no uh, way to get 
Alex Villanueva to actually resign. But there are definitely a lot of ways to, I mean, we, we control in the city the the largest pipeline of people into Villanueva's clutches, which is the LAPD. Uh, like that is something that we could, we, keeping more people out of his jails is a way to uh, undermine his influence over the county. But they don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. No, of course not. Uh, let's talk about... It's, it's, it's. Let me look outside. It's a little gross. But it's a lot better it's, than it was. It's, it's less gross. Yeah. yeah. I would say, you know, it's like medium gross. The smoke went away on Wednesday-ish or so. Uh, it smelled pretty bad for another few days. The Bobcat fire is still going. But I think a combination of it's 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 more contained. Uh, it seems to be in decline, and like maybe wind patterns changing a little bit has cleared the air. Uh, and we don't have the air coming from down north like we did before too. For a while, we had the wildfires from like Oregon coming, you know, and, right, and uh, Northern California coming down this way too. Yes, so that's nice. Will I go outside again? Maybe, maybe not. I tried it. I tried yeah. it. It was it was fine. It seemed fine. Yeah. I let uh, my kids play outside for 30 minutes instead of 20 minutes. We had some reporting around. We've been talking so much about uh, cooling centers and uh, breath uh, relief. Breathing centers. Breathing centers. Breathing center. <laughs> uh, on, the, on the show for the last few weeks. Like these, these spaces that the city either sets up or doesn't set up to give people respite from the outside. And we actually talked about uh, a few weeks ago that the city's excuse is often like, well, we set up these spaces and people who are homeless or people that don't have air conditioning or whatever, people don't use them for the most part. We open the doors and and people don't show up. And Emily Alperez of the LA Times uh, reported a story basically confirming this that said a total of 300 people used uh the six cooling uh, the, uh, the 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 six breathing centers uh that were set up over the labor no I'm sorry this was a, this was for cooling centers this was for cooling centers yeah over the extremely so hot labor, la- day. labor day weekend yeah. 300 people using co- the cooling centers which means about uh, 11 visitors uh daily at each site uh that's pretty close to the capacity of some of these cooling centers but but at but at any given time not over the course of the entire day so that is a really low number uh and i think the city and the parks department sort of has this attitude of like see like we we never needed to open these in the first place uh i you you could say that if even one of those people would have if they made it to a cooling center, that means that they were probably in the pretty bad shape from the heat. So still worth doing, even if it is only 11 people per day that like aren't at risk of heat exhaustion because of going to these centers. But it also does kind of underscore what we're talking about, which is like, it's not just this bare minimum action of opening up these spaces, right? Like you, there is some obligation to create a service that people are more likely to use. I mean, there's so many things. We talked about this before, but I think, you know, reading Emily's story, you hear these stories from uh, either organizers who were out there trying to just get cold water to people who they knew couldn't physically relocate. Um, And from what they were saying, and also some of the unhoused people, 
that I liked how she included, um, I think it was a quote from someone from Cape Town for All is they like, someone was like, yes, I'd love to go. Can you take me there? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these other cities that have been, especially during the smoke, and their air was a lot worse than ours. Like they're, like Portland was like over like 500 AQI for like a couple of days. But they had an outreach, a coordinated outreach program that was getting people in vans and any other kind of transportation that they needed to get them to safe places, um, no matter what, you know. And I guess when I was thinking about it too, I also think that some of those cities have cold weather plans that are similar yeah. to that. Like when they know it's going to freeze, you know, we it also freezes here, um, not as much as it used to. Um, and I, I was thinking just about like that one type of thing, like you must have a different action plan for maybe that. And they could probably just put that into effect. But we literally have nothing, <laughs> like not even for the hottest days. And it, it would even just be like, okay, let's at least put these centers closest to where people are living outside because we do know that information at least. Like they, they do know where the largest camps are and where, you know, the most people are in need. I mean, that would be the number one sp- simplest thing that you could do. There's yeah. libraries everywhere. You know, I don't, I don't see how it wouldn't even be that hard just to strategically do that. And during the fires, it could have been closer to places where the smoke was worse. It's very easy to see where the smoke is bad. We don't probably need a smoke relief center, you know, in Venice on the beach. Um, But just basic, basic like emergency management uh, rationale for, for dealing with this. And for Labor Day in particular, when it was so hot, we had 19 deaths of unhoused people over the course of the weekend. I was with Anna Scott, a friend of the show who did this amazing uh, homelessness uh, series on KCRW. Samaritans. Um, we were, Samaritans, yes, check it out. We were on KCRW on Greater LA um, talking about, you know, what happens when you don't give people places to go. And we had 19 people die that weekend. Usually it's three per day. It might be more like four per day this year um, because we're getting very close to the number that was reached last year. Yeah, I thought Barbara Ferrer had said that we had already reached that number. And I think I said that on the show. Uh, But according to recent updates, we are just very close to reaching that number already. Yeah. Um, So those are deaths that could have been preventable. And we don't, there's many more deaths of people who are probably housed who live in a place and maybe their air conditioner didn't work. There's all these different other factors. It doesn't necessarily mean unhoused, but like those are deaths that we could have done something about. And that's an emergency that the city should be undertaking like an emergency and really didn't do anything. Well, I mean, and we have emergency management for other like it's not a great sign that like our earthquake alert app designed for housed people also does not work. But like we like we have our the Nixle system that like sends Mm -hmm. out texts, which like we've talked about on the show is something that you could do when you do homeless outreach. You could say, do you want to get text just letting you know what services are available? Sela does that. And Mike Bonin, the council member, finally uh, this past week, uh, I think, put forward a motion saying, like, we should uh, consider doing that uh, at the at the city level. 
But more and more, I mean, we talk about like city governments so much on this show and like the delayed response and like doing the absolute bare minimum and kind of how inert the process is. And if like even when there's like a sea change in public opinion, you only get like four out of 15 votes to to do anything about it. The, like more and more, it feels like especially watching all the groups that are going out and doing it themselves now that that's just what it's going to be. And like a show like this, rather than uh, focusing on criticism of our, the reaction of our city government, we'll just start ignoring them. Like we, like at, at some point they, they tell you who they are and they just say like, this is just not something we're that interested in doing. I think you do see some shifts. Bob Blumenfield council member in the third district went out, uh, yeah, and he also passed a, a motion too um, to do some of what I was just talking about, like more of a geographic strategy when it comes to the location and the logistics for getting people to centers and, and where they would be open and, and exploring more of the public-private partnerships. You know, the giant, I was walking through like Hollywood, there was like these giant theaters, which are yeah. actually kind of a perfect place to perfect. to have people go because you could space them out in seats and they're they're so big. Um, but yeah, I think even when you look at those motions, right? So you talked about Bonin's and, and Blumenfield's and the bottom of it is like, I call for Rexham Park, emergency management. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, operate, you know, uh, uh, I can't even, uh, I don't know. It's like, so many organizations, Metro, it's all these yeah. organizations that have to get together and figure this out that just to have this very simple thing happen, which we know we're going to need at least a few more times um, this fall. It's going to be hot and smoky. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, the closest version of that was like we talked about uh, Herb Wesson opened up the Crenshaw Mall, got that open. But at the and time, nobody can really figure out how he did that. It seems like he just kind of did it and yeah. didn't ask anybody, which is great. But also didn't <laughs> didn't tell anyone that it was yeah, happening. Also, yeah, but I think it was a last minute thing. But like, just go rogue, people. <laughs> but even the announcement on like social media said like it was open today, <laughs> and it was like, oh, well, did anyone show up? And they're like, no. <laughs> but nobody yeah what i think there was like 11 people there 10 like people over the entire weekend yeah over the, well, it was, yeah it was two days out of the weekend yeah, yeah. so but yeah i mean you know it. Uh, yeah you're right it just feels like the the ultimate result is just gonna have to we have this like brief period of uh potentially brief of a lot of attention being paid to city government but they're basically telling us to just like move along like you're yeah. you're you're barking up the wrong tree yeah. but groups like uh street watch and k-town for all and people city council went out and uh sila of course did a lot of stuff and like uh there's so many in the city now that it feels like with unified efforts and the increased amount of money going into these groups uh could Spend it more nimbly. I mean, it makes you feel like a libertarian, but like, give your money to those groups. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah. yeah. Uh, let's yeah. talk about uh, these. Ho- I mean, so this is actually all related. It is uh, related. Everything is uh, everything Sadly. is connected. Um, there was a report 
that came out this week uh, at the behest of council members. I think Mike Bonin was one of them uh, who went to the city and said, we need to be told why all these hotels, particularly ones that have been built on former city properties or gotten significant tax breaks from the city, didn't participate in Project Room Key, uh, the initiative to get as many people at the beginning of the pandemic, as many people who lived on the street housed in hotel rooms to keep them safe from COVID. We talked about a lot on the show, but the initial goal was 15,000 for the county. And it seems to have topped out and basically ended at around 4,500. Is that roughly the number? I didn't think that many, but yeah, four, you say four. Yeah. Uh, And the report came back and it was pretty straightforward, uh, which was that the vast majority of these hotels just said that they did not want homeless people to be in the hotels. Uh, There were reports of like some hotels getting very close uh, to like agreeing to participate in Project Room Key uh, only to have a major first. They said a major client. Then they revealed it was an airline company uh, said that they would cancel their business with the hotel, this was specifically the the Millennium Biltmore in uh, Pershing Square, if Project Room Key came in. Great. What <laughs> they <laughs> said, and like by the way, so that like we don't want any more planes flying to. Yeah, it's that <laughs> like if if you want to talk about a thriving industry, homeless <laughs> services right now is much healthier yeah. than airlines. If you want to like invest industry. in certain partnerships for the yeah. health of your business. <laughs> Uh, and so they said the, uh, the LA live Ritz was like, we have too many people that live here full time. So we will allow our hotel rooms to just sit completely empty rather than let homeless people, uh, share an elevator with the people that, uh, that, that live here all the time. They're not even, they don't, they're not, they're separated. They're that's it's separate entrance. It's like, I think in yes. some cases like separate building. Yeah. It's completely, uh, uh, different. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that was the upshot of it, right? They just didn't want to do it. And then we had, I mean, some, we talked about the um, Discover Los Angeles, you know, this, this, uh, which I assume Labor Day weekend and all these, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, trying to get people to spend some money yeah. in the city tourism wise. And then all of them are saying, that they're actually not doing well and they're financially kind of uh, destroyed. And now another story in the LA Times today was about how to expecting a tsunami of hotel closings. Yeah. It gave the sob story of the Lux in Beverly Hills um, that they can't possibly get through this and uh, they're just going to shut down operations, which might be... Also good news if we can suddenly have a bunch of empty hotels that we might be able to purchase at a potentially a low price um, from that the city could do, which is part of this big state operation, which they now say Project Room Key is changing to Project Home Key. Yes. And that's why oh, they're putting up some so funds. To, it's just they can't just stop naming things. Um, but actually, like, uh, I think like San Diego has gotten... Um, a, a couple of these properties yeah. already purchased and then um, up north too. So if that's the model, I mean, we don't know if tourism is coming back. It likely will not. Um, it, this is would be a great 
idea if we could do this. Um, And the rooms are, you know, we talked about the cost of homeless housing, how expensive it's gotten in the city uh, to convert a hotel room. Um, Seems much easier to do at a lower cost. Um, So it's not that I'm hoping all these properties that wouldn't take people in are going to go out of business, but, um, you know, they should just really think about how they're going to be making money in the next few months. And it sure would be great if you could have somebody paying for your rooms for people to stay there. It just sounds like a a really great, you know, business, good business sense. The two tsunamis, I mean, we hear that word about two different things these days. And one is evictions and the other is hotels uh, being empty and like forced to close. And it seems like they're kind of like moving in opposite directions. They could kind of cancel each other out with uh, interventionist policy. Uh, But we are choosing to take a more laissez-faire approach to this issue as always. And uh, Mayor Garcetti this week was speaking at the LA LAG uh, what what was it? It's the LGBTQ plus Alliance of Los Angeles Neighborhood Councils. Los Angeles Neighborhood Councils, yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, said something that I think kind of lets us know exactly how uh, our our approach to homelessness is going to work over the next few years. So let's play this clip. I'm actually optimistic that the only silver lining of an economic downturn, as we saw in 2009, is that there's more vacancies. I was talking to some landlord group and a bunch of them were saying we're like 10, 15, 20 percent vacant. That's a positive size sign for all of us. I know it's difficult for them on the business side, but in a good economy, homelessness goes up because of rents. In a bad economy, it can go down and we can find much faster placements um, for people out of shelters. And I'm optimistic, cautiously that in this coming year, as we come out of COVID-19 and even in the midst of it, we can hopefully help those landlords out, find vouchers, other housing supplement that we can get people into the housing that for too long took them months or even a year or more. So this was a widely shared soundbite. <laughs> uh, and people were rightfully focused on Garcetti saying that in a good economy, homelessness goes up because of rents. And historically, that is true. It's actually, I mean, it's like not that a controversial a statement based on right. recent trends. Yeah. yeah. Which is homelessness was really bad in 2008 uh, and got a lot, declined a lot after the financial crisis when rents went down a lot. And when we know when rents go up, uh, that homelessness, it really increases, especially in a really constricted rental market like Los Angeles. But what it shows is that our local leaders kind of think of themselves as just kind of like kelp in the tides <laughs> of like financial <laughs> trends. Right. And like if you do just let rents uh, increase unchecked. And if you let new development, uh, be more and more expensive, uh, and it like, if you let economic, uh, winds like kind of blow in whatever direction they're going to blow, then that's what, that is what happens. But we, our leaders also make a lot of choices 
Like the, I think the hotels are a great example. Yeah. We chose our period of economic largesse to encourage the development of more tourism, uh, to, to build a ton of hotels. And we did have this like very thriving economy for a, almost a decade. And we, we put that, those expenditures into a lot of it into policing, <laughs> uh, which also is connected to tourism and like people. Yeah, that's part of hotels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, but rather than making a, an equally economically valid investment in uh, securing a kind of a social safety net. Uh, and providing more housing for people like we're now just blowing huge amounts of money because uh, we're treating the problem too late. Right. There were two tells in what he said. One was we're going to help help out, see how we can help out those landlords. And then that he also had met with the landlords. Um, so that really revealed the priorities of that administration in particular, because I don't think he ever said yeah we met with tenants organizers or tenant groups right. or we That's talked right. to renters who were having trouble it's all about the landlord yeah and like when like it's also to some extent about like certain populations of voters and when i think about buying hotels it's an active measure for a city government to buy a hotel and put homeless people in it and we have seen in different parts of the the county and city, when uh, when governments try to do that, local neighbors freak out about it. And the, I think our our elected leaders correctly identify those people as the voters, like people who predominantly vote, and especially the people that have voted them into power mm -hmm. in the past. And themselves, they all don't they all. Sure. Aren't they all landlords. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I think that's just what we're seeing here. And I think the only possible change is if, you know, like having worked on Nithya's campaign as a volunteer for a while, I think it could make a difference if now that so many more people are participating in elections, if they see that like more, that the majority of voters now want more active, more compassionate, more like effective policy around homelessness and now the vocal minority has become an actual minority among people who vote i think that could make a difference but one thing i don't know it's discouraging that um like paul Caretz, for example still uh felt like he had to kill uplift melrose last week because of these same forces like killed uh, killed bike lanes because these same people are showing up and saying don't do this don't do anything uh that that even the people that are kind of ambitious and want to be reelected again are, are looking at the landscape of the city and thinking that it's still more politically effective for them to do less always uh there was a report this week that i think is uh worth looking at that a coalition of academics and tenants rights groups uh put out about uh, vacancies. We, I have not like dug through it yet, but, uh, it seems worth reading even in this, um, rapidly, uh, changing, uh, landscape of vacancies. Speaking of transportation, those Metro cuts that we've been talking about, um, they happened. 
Well, I think there's one more chance to tell them that Always you're mad one about more this. <laughs> so I think that we should r- remind them. We had, speaking again of people who have no vested interest in the policy that they are passing that will impact the lives of people um, who they seem to know nothing about or care nothing about. Um, Metro's budget committee, I don't know who these people are, um, five people who don't ride transit, decided um, this week that the service cuts that we've been talking about um, here and a lot of um, advocates have been talking about, um, which would basically slice bus, basically cut bus service by 20% um, in a very uncertain time for everyone. Um, They said, even after listening for, I don't know how long that meeting was, everybody that commented said, don't do this. Here's why. Um, They also didn't have it set up in a way, it said that you could leave comment by phone and you actually couldn't do that for some reason. It was, the phone was only to listen. (laughs) So it feels like it was almost like, kind of a trick to be like, you can comment, but then you actually had to log in and, and again, like putting up more barriers to having your voice heard. I'm willing to believe that they just screwed that up. <laughs> oh, you think it wasn't on purpose. It was just That's uh, an at accident. least believable to me. I mean, I, I think uh, someone described it as like they're gaslighting us. I think it was at Street Spog. Um, Joe Linton maybe wrote that headline. And I think that's actually quite accurate at this point. It's trying to convince us that um, this isn't that big of a deal or something um, that as our own Scott Frazier pointed out, which I think is really relevant um, in a little thread he did today. If you've been on the bus lately, um, the bus is the, the full bus is not available to be used. If you get on the bus, you have to get on the back, go in the back door and you can't get anywhere in front of like where it depends on what style of bus you're in, but like the whole front section is off limits because we're trying to protect the driver. And so that's why you don't board for the front front door either. Um, so that's losing quite a few seats already. Particularly and if Scott you're in a wheelchair. Yes. Well, I mean, I don't even, I, I assume that they make a special, I haven't seen anybody using a wheelchair on the bus that I, the buses that I've been on. I assume that they have to use those if you're on a wheelchair because that, in your wheelchair, because that's what you have, that's the only option for where you can go in these buses. But um, Scott is arguing that they haven't even considered that capacity is already diminished on these buses in their estimates. So we're already down a bunch of seats on each one. And they have a plan to say that everyone is going to have plenty of room somehow to socially distance. And that the buses are going to for sure come on time to make sure that you're not, um, you know, they're not bunching up and you're not getting on a crowded bus. I don't believe any of those things are going to happen. So so they're putting fewer people on the bus, but in, in much less space. So they're just as yeah. packed in as, as, right. as you were before. Right. And so, I mean, this could be not just you know, bad for service and, and hard, making it harder for people to get around people who rely on the bus, but it could also quickly become a huge health crisis, you know, a a second wave type of thing. Um, as people start to feel like they can take transit again and, you know, we've had some bus drivers die, um, from COVID-19. Um, it's been a really big problem in other cities, you know, places like New York had a lot of deaths, um, from MTA deaths. Um, and, that it just doesn't seem like of, of all the things of all the times to do it, this seems like the wrong move. So be sure to look at, if you look up um, 
People's Transit has to hashtag. Um, you'll be able to find a lot of groups like Act LA and Investing in Place that are really making a lot of noise about this. So, I saw somewhere that they they announced the number of uh, city workers who had died. I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I was struck by how many it is. And it doesn't seem like we've been hearing exactly who, uh, whether it's specific departments that are being affected, like who that is still going to work is in a... Um, uh, a vulnerable situation. It is scary. And yet, our, uh, while it is not declining as quickly as it has been in, in past weeks, our numbers are still generally going down. Um, we had 23 deaths, I think, t- with, on a Sunday, which is pretty high um, because that's, that's weekend reporting. Uh, but it's something like 750, 760 people who are hospitalized right now with COVID, um, which is still a lot better than it uh, than it has been in the past. Any news on um, school stuff? No school stuff. Um, I think they we talked before about how um, they are able to bring some types of students onto campus yeah. now. Um, uh, and I've heard, I haven't seen, um, I mean, I haven't like, uh, I've, I've gone by and I've seen, but like some people are taking their kids to the rec center programs where you can have them get online and get reliable internet and they can like play outside. And, um, so that seems like it's going well too for the people who are using it. So, um, it's, you know, challenging, but, um, it's, it's going to be, it's, we'll make it <laughs> for families that are still having, still struggling with, internet connection and getting their meals, you know, that's, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough few months, but we can do everything we can to support them. Um, there is one COVID era program though, that is not doing so well. And that's the news we got from, uh, from the city about the alfresco program. Hayes, don't be upset. Don't what? Don't tell me. <laughs> this is the first time hearing of it. I'm going to, I'm going to break some news. Okay. That's just, it's going to break your heart. The Alfresco program has run out of money. What can, uh, where do I send my, <laughs> they can have all of mine. Surely there must be. How many, how many K-rails you got in your garage that you can <laughs> donate to the cause? <laughs> so there's this very strange story. So that's it, story. huh? Just like that? Yeah. I guess we're done. I mean, there's this strange, Farley Elliott at uh, Eater LA reported the story and you just kind of had to read it twice because First of all, what is it costing? How does it cost money to save restaurants? Why are we spending money to help restaurants make money when we can't just let them make money? So somehow we are, this has a budgetary thing attached to it. Right. Um, And I thought maybe it was because of things like putting out the barriers or approving permits, but it might be related to furloughs. We're having a lot of talk of furloughs happening. So it might be that they just have no money to have staff to do these things. Or I don't even know if they can't, I mean, are they inspected? Doesn't seem like it. The (laughs) videos, I mean, you couldn't like pay me to, uh, walk I'll down be- the sidewalk on like <laughs> That's Vermont Ave or something, but like yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of videos that we've seen of uh, people walking down and really no space at all uh, while cars are speeding by. And once and, again, uh, if you're in a wheelchair, forget it. Yeah, forget it. 
There's one in particular in Silver Lake where they built like a, you know, this asphalted fake sidewalk that goes into the street, but the restaurants get to stay on the sidewalk. So maybe that's a cost like that. Maybe they blew all their money on the on the fake sidewalk in Silver Lake. But um, I think what this was kind of most striking, you know, we've seen people use their parking lots. We've we've talked about this before, about we just haven't seen like the street activation type thing. And I guess there's been applications for closing entire streets or using more parking spaces, but they have only, you know, we're like talking like maybe like a few dozen places in the entire city where any type of parking space or like a street parking space or street space has been given over to restaurants. So we, it's, I guess it's not that sad that the program might be ending because it's, didn't really achieve that much. And still what restaurant is, restaurants are still closing. Like restaurants are still not able to make it. It's kind of encouraging in a way because like all these other programs related to homelessness in particular, they're announced with great fanfare and they just end in like either disaster or just with like a quarter of the success that they had anticipated. And so it's kind of nice that the city is basically being like, well, well, we, we can, we screwed these other ones up as well. The ones related to like restaurants and like commerce and the stuff that we do really care about. We also right. don't do a great job of executing <laughs> those. So we're unbiased in our, uh, in our being bad at stuff. And meanwhile, you know, we still had, we had some news this week from the county as far as um, helping street vendors by um, really coming up with a way to support them during this time. Hilda Solis passed this great yeah. motion and um, it's going to really, you know, really, really help street vendors in a way that, you know, we're still struggling to do in the city. But again, like we've spent all this money to what, like let a couple people drink beer in a parking spot. Um, but we still haven't been able to do anything to help the people who actually sell food and specialize in it outside on the sidewalks already and whose businesses could also use some help. So speaking of motions that I think are sort of worth keeping an eye on, I, I'm not sure a lot of people noticed this, but there was this coalition of six council members after George Floyd's murder, like a, and after all the protests, notably, uh, that got together and said, we're reimagining public safety. We're pulling uh, armed officers out of nonviolent calls. And it was like a big deal. And Herb Wesson kind of led that uh, charge. And they, they, they filed a, they, a motion to get a report on how to do this. And then last week... And they had some, they had some uh, public uh, meetings, like a town... They had a bunch of meetings halls. as well. Yeah. They did have a lot yeah. of meetings, but I think they also asked for the CAO or C- CLA's office for right, like... Right, a how, report back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How this would work. But then last week, the, the, the report has not come back. These things take forever. But then last week they said, we're moving ahead with this and we're going to pilot a unarmed crisis intervention uh, van, basically. And also sent off for a report back on how to do that. So it was weird to me that they didn't wait for the original report to come back. I wonder if sometimes they just don't. Uh, and so I, I, I wonder if it ever will, but it also seemed like it could be a way to kind of resolve the issue and mm. say like, we are piloting this. We're seeing how it works. Right. 
they spend a couple million dollars. Anything more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and like try it out. But this was always kind of what I was worried about. But it was also the way it was always going to go. Yeah. That's interesting. If it, yeah, quietly they'll be like, well, we did that. We did what you said. And um, don't ask us again. And people who are running for office, Herb Wesson being one of them, can point to that and say, like, I did this. You know, the, it's a slow process, but we've already got a pilot. Like, could be picked up to to series and there could be <laughs> we could have pretty soon we could have two vans <laughs> thank you for listening i think that's it for today the feel better scott for people that are reading his post did that great thread today about the space on the bus and this was a, a very sick a young man who's feeling sick yeah. and he's posting probably, through it that probably made him sick though he probably like posted the last tweet in the thread and he was like metro feel better scott feel better everyone else who is listening thank you brian holmes for producing the show we will be back next week bye bye